0: You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Today we'll read from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. For I tell you unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees you will never enter the kingdom of heaven this is the word of the Lord thanks be to God thanks, John. Uh, me, I'm me. thanks uh, before I have you sit uh, this is what we confess this is what Our kids, ages 5 to 7, will be learning in Redemption Hill Kids. And here's the deal, kids, uh, after you get out of Redemption Hill Kids a little bit later, I want you to come to me, and I want you to tell me what it is Mr. Aaron was trying to teach you this morning, okay? So try to focus, pay attention, and then come find me afterwards, and then tell me what you learned. And what you have been learning over the last several classes is what Christ has accomplished through his death, namely, redemption, and all that Christ has accomplished through redemption. So... I'm going to read this from the New City Catechism. I'm going to read part of our answer from our Confession of Faith. And after the question uh, with me, uh, read the answer. So what else does Christ's death redeem? With me. These redeemed persons are united not only to Christ, but also to one another in local churches. The church is a community of the redeemed and as such is called to proclaim the glories of our Savior, both individually and as churches. His people are called to proclaim his glory in word and deed and in all the varied vocations. That's good stuff. All right. So we have redemption of kids for ages 2 to 4 and then also 5 to 9. So if that serves you parents, you just go right across the hallway and they'll check you in if you haven't been checked in already. And you may be seated. Thanks for standing for the reading of God's Word, and for that as well. If uh, kids are staying in, we do have totes, and we have kids' sermon notes as well, so uh, they're in the hallway. If that serves you, you can grab those now, and then I got a whole bunch of goodies up here afters. I mean, we're talking like bracelets and stickers and stamps, and it got filled by somebody, I'm not sure who, but all good stuff in there. All right, we're continuing to make our way through the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, it's the greatest sermon ever preached, not because Jesus had five points and all those five points were perfectly alliterated. It's not the greatest sermon because Jesus had a prop for every time he had a point to make. It's the greatest sermon ever preached because of the content. We read in all the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, a lot of what Jesus taught, and we read a lot of what he did. It's all authoritative and instructive, but the Sermon on the Mount is unique in its teaching and in its structure. Clearly, special care went into, at least from the gospel writer Matthew's perspective, into crafting this sermon and passing it along to us. So we've gone through the Beatitudes, which what we've talked about how that shapes your heart. And then... Next week, we will begin a series of teachings about how, do you, how, do you, how to respond, right? After Jesus shapes your heart, what do you do next? Uh, as I've been saying, essence becomes before action. So after today, we will be called into action. Um, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us who we are, and now we go do. I was thinking about this dynamic between uh, essence and action earlier this week, and I was reminded of what I say to my kids when I drop them off to school. They're, they're homeschooled, but on Tuesdays, they go to a homeschooling uh, co-op, and I drop them off. So this happens invariably almost every single time. Um, we're, I pull up to the curb, and I get out. I give them hugs. They know this. I pray. And then I tell them, you're a Powers. And what do Powers do? We look out for those who are in need. We stand up to bullies someone's lonely, you engage that person. Now, why do I say that? In a sense, when I say you're a powers, I'm, I'm telling them about their essence, like who they are. And then I say, now go do this. Go act like a powers. And I say something to this effect just about every single time I, I drop them off. So we have like this similar dynamic in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Today's sermon is actually a bridge between essence and action. Last week, we were on one side of the bridge. Today, we're actually kind of walking over the bridge so that we can get to the other side. I also want to mention that today's message is going to feel a little bit like a fire hose. Um, A lot's going to be coming at you for reasons I'm going to explain here in a moment. Uh, I will use theological words that might be new to some of you, and I'm going to try to explain the meaning of those words and those terms. Uh, the the reason for my terminology this morning is that I'm attempting to actually to be very precise. And you'll, I think you'll see why. So uh, you'll receive the fire hose in a few moments here, uh, but I promise next week when you walk right across over to the water fountain, it um, won't, won't feel like it's all coming at you. I've actually I've actually contemplated maybe next week, doing a part two of this particular passage because there's just so much here. And I'm not even sure I've begun to scratch the surface of what Jesus is saying and why it's necessary to walk over the bridge from essence to action. So I need God's help clearly. Um, So I ask you to pray briefly with me and then we'll get into Matthew 5, verses 17 to 20. Help me, Father. I just want to confess my neediness this morning. This text alone... um, feels weighty. And so help me to be faithful to what you've already spoken. And I pray for my friends here this morning, that as they sit and listen, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would speak and instruct their hearts and their lives. I I do pray that the Sermon on the Mount would not just be words on a page, but that we'd see them as authoritative and and instructive. So help us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been a Christian for just about 20 years. Uh, For 20 years, I've been reading the Bible. I've been listening to sermons. I've clearly been preaching sermons. I've graduated from three different institutions of higher education, and in each situation, I graduated with a degree focusing on some aspect of Christianity. I've sat around many tables and fire pits talking with friends about the Bible, about theology, about the Christian life. I mean, at present, I serve as the chair of the theology committee in our denomination. I've spent a lot of time drinking in the Bible, thinking about theology, and trying to grasp some of the trickiest elements of Christianity. And in my experience, there are some questions I have wrestled with more than others. Here's the question that I've wrestled with over probably a good part of 18 years, and I've settled on the answer in more recent years. The question is this, what is the relationship of the Old Testament law to a follower of Jesus Christ? What's that relationship? I'll say the question perhaps in another way to bring more clarity. Does God call Christians to follow the Old Testament law? Right? Perhaps you've picked up on my position already, and especially in the last two weeks, where we've, this kind of, we've kind of had this on-ramp onto this sermon. The last beatitude is, blessed are those who are persecuted for what righteousness' sake. We saw that. And I said, you could restate that, that, that beatitude. Blessed are you who are persecuted for doing what is right. It takes on an ethical component. And two weeks ago, I hinted that doing what is right requires a standard. How do we know what is right and wrong? Who's applying the standard to that? If God does not provide the moral standard, then we're in a whole lot of trouble, in my opinion. Last week, we read that Jesus says that you are salt and light of the, of the world. Salt of the earth, light of the world. But what is the end goal of being salt and light? We read this in Matthew five sixteen. So that they, and who were the they? The earth, the world, the people in the earth, the people of the world. They they may see your good works. and, And as a result, what? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So the end goal is that other people will give glory to God because of your good works. Again, your good works take on an ethical component. So how do we know what good works are to be done by followers of Jesus Christ? How can a person begin to define good works? Well, we can begin with the moral law, the Ten Commandments. And then we can look to the Old Testament prophets to see what they preached about living rightly before God. And then we could also look at the words of Christ, in particular, the Sermon on the Mount, But we're in right now. So if you're a student in the Bible, you actually should not be left wondering what are these good works that God is calling me to do? The answer's in here. I mean, we, we fail to remember, myself included, that the answers are in here. But the answers are in this book. Now, I know some of you have been tracking with me. I've seen those well, no one says amen in this church, but maybe inside of you you're saying amen, or you do it with the head nod, and you know, is that amen? Amen, and back, thank you. Somebody who said that, thank you. Amen, thank you. Uh, but some of you might be wrestling with the relationship between the law and the Christian life, right? Uh, you were raised in a church that completely unhitched the law from the Christian life. Uh, you've been told that grace and law are actually at odds with one another you have believed that you are to love God and other people, right? The two greatest commandments, right? We cannot forget that. Two greatest commandments, love God and love others. But love has remained like undefined. What does it mean to love? Like just put in books on love in your Google search. What are you going to get? A million different answers. Because love has become malleable to us. Kind of do whatever you want with it. This morning, I hope to connect a few dots for you by showing you how Christ understands his relationship to the Old Testament law. And I know that I am stepping into a debatable conversation. But it's not an overstatement to say that Matthew 5, verses 17 to 20, could be the most debated passage in the Bible. Could be. It's up there. I'm calling it top five. How you interpret this passage really does shape how you understand what it means to live your Christian life. So my job today is to persuade you of my particular understanding of Matthew 5, 17 to 20. And I'm, I'm unapologetic about that. I do want to persuade you. So here's what I'm going to do. I hope it'll be easy for you to follow... I'm going to look at each verse in order, and then in the end summarize. I think the teaching of Christ. For all of you note takers, here are my headings just for my manuscript. We're going to look at verse 14, 17, excuse me, which is about fulfilling the law, and then in verse 18, I kind of titled it the durability of the law, and then in verse 19, perpetuating the law. And then in verse 20, the righteousness of Christ and the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm going to admit to this to you right now. I don't deal much with the kingdom of heaven because it shows up three times in our text. And I'm thinking about doing another sermon on that next week because we really got to understand, what does that even mean? It comes up all the time in the gospel of Matthew. And so put a, put a pin in that one. I'm, I'm hoping to get to that. So systematically, we're going to go right, right through our text. I do hope you'll include that the law is not bad. That's where I want to lead you. The law is not opposite of grace. I want you to resist the urge to pit law against grace. Uh, But the law shows the glorious glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, the law shows us the purpose of God's grace. Those are some things I want you to see this morning. So let's look at the first statement by Jesus. Verse 17, let's look at it again. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come, by the way, the negations in this text are everywhere not, no, not, no. So Jesus, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So the statement, I think, is straightforward, but I think requires several observations. And I actually have four observations for verse 17. My first observation is that fulfillment cannot mean abolish. It seems like stating the obvious, but it needs to be said. The Greek for abolish can mean destroy or demolish or just completely do away with. So right out of the gate, we know that the Old Testament law maintains purpose in God's economy and plan. So we need to sort out what it means for Christ to fulfill the law. But at a minimum, it does not mean abolish or do away with. Let's start there. I think we can just agree on that. Now, maybe you're like, yeah, I agree with you. There's a lot of people who actually disagree with me on that. This is an important point because you know what? I know a lot of you, because we're friends, grew up in some types of churches that would not agree with that statement. Perhaps you grew up in, like, say, a dispensationalist church. Right? Uh, independent, fundamentalist, Baptist, kind of not an amen, but said hand raised, right? You, you've been there. And you were taught something completely different. Functionally and theologically, uh, this group of uh, this idea, this way of thinking, this way, the system of theology, dispensationalists, are doing the very thing that Jesus says not to do, namely, abolish the law. <laughs> Yes, my dispensationalist friends will say uh, the law played a part in God's plan in history, but they will also say it is no longer bind, binding in the new covenant. The new covenant is being kind of what we're in right now, post-cross. And I'm just going to say, love y'all, but you're wrong. If I can, if I can, can, I, can I humbly say you're wrong? I mean, can I do that? Because I, I really want to do that. I'm, oh, you're wrong. It's not what we see in God's word. I mean, don't take it from me, just take it from Jesus. He shows us the continuity of the law between the Old Testament, think Old Covenant, and New Testament, New Covenant. So my first observation is that the law was not abolished but has some role under the New Covenant. It has a role in our lives today. My second observation is that Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets In the New Testament, whenever you run into uh, law and prophets and they're paired together, oftentimes that means the totality of the Old Testament. When you say law and prophets, it basically means Old Testament. When the prophets spoke about a future Messiah, who were they preaching about? They were preaching about Jesus. They were not preaching about Israel. They were preaching about Christ They were preaching to Israel, right? They were making prophetic statements to Israel, but the prophets wanted Israel to get their gaze off themselves to help them to see a future Messiah. That their hope is not in their present circumstances. Their hope is in a future Messiah. That's what they were preaching if you were to do a cursory reading of Matthew 1-4, like Matthew 1-4 is the lead-in to the Sermon on the Mount, right? You would read that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin to fulfill the words of the prophet Isaiah, Matthew 5, Matthew 23 You would also read that the words of uh, Hosea were fulfilled, Matthew 2-15, and the words of Jeremiah were fulfilled, Matthew 2-18 the fulfillment of these prophetic words does not negate the message that was preached, but find its culmination in Christ. Too many people just want to unhitch the Old Testament and say that was, that was for them. And we don't see that anywhere in the New Testament. It was all pointing to Jesus, the law and the prophets. You can probably tell I'm a little jacked up this morning uh, because I'm really passionate about this particular issue. I want you to read your Bibles well. I want you to know God. Third observation about verse 17. What about the Old Testament law? If the law was not abolished, what does that mean for Jesus to fulfill the law? That's like the natural question. Okay, it's not abolished, but what does fulfillment mean? What's going on here? Without making, hopefully, a sermon into a seminary class, uh, I'm going to quickly summarize the Old Testament law. You can read the law in Leviticus, uh, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that's the third, fourth, and fifth books of the Bible. First, there were ceremonial or sacrificial laws, that's one category in, in the Old Testament, right? Ceremonial, sacrificial, so that'd be like one heading. Then we have either civil or judicial laws, like how do we live in society? That would be like another category. And then a final category, like there were moral laws, like don't hit your friend. <laughs> you know, very simple, very basic, don't do that. So we have like these three categories. All these laws were given to God's people so that they would what? We've been saying this through the Sermon on the Mount, so that they would live distinctly among pagans. We read in the the book of Hebrews, New Testament, that Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial and sacrificial laws through his death and resurrection. We sang about that this morning, actually. I don't know if you picked up on it. The reason you do not need to go to a temple to partake in various ceremonies is because Jesus is the greater temple. The reason why you do not need to grab a knife or a dove and a goat and go to an altar for that sacrifice is because Jesus is the final sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus has fulfilled that. Also, Jesus, who sits on the throne of King David, right? get that language all throughout the Gospels. Fulfills the civil demands. I've said this before and I'll repeat it again. The book of Hebrews is the greatest exposition of the Old Testament, and in particular, the Old Testament law. Like what I do every single week is I'm doing expositional work here. I'm trying to tell you what God has said And the book of Hebrews in the New Testament is the greatest exposition of the Old Testament law. Now on a side note or maybe a footnote because within Christian Twitterdom... <laughs> Uh, this controversy has arisen in recent years. There's a contention of Christians who believe in this idea of theonomy. Let's, let's get into the, civil, the Old Testament civil laws here. So theonomy is the idea that the civil laws of the Old Testament need to be instituted right now. Right. Now, on the one hand, every Christian believes in some version of theonomy. I mean, at the end of the day. We're there because, like, if you believe that Jesus is going to return and he's going to rule and reign over all things and everything's going to be put away, all sin and brokenness put away, yeah, you believe in some version of theonomy on some level. We're all there. But some believe that civil laws of the Old Testament should be instituted now and not wait for the second advent of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm sympathetic, actually, to uh, theonomus but I because I agree with Abraham Kuyper when he said this in 1880, There's not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord over all, does not exclaim, Mine. That's a great statement. Love that statement. Go ahead and put it on a plaque and put it up in the kitchen. I am sympathetic, but I make a sharp distinction between knowing that every square inch of the universe belongs to Christ and the idea that we need to reinstill the kingdom of Israel under the rule of David. In my opinion, Jesus who sits on the throne of David has fulfilled this aspect of the Old Testament law. Like Christians are called to be salt and light in the world. We want to make a positive influence on on the world, right? We are called to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. But any version of theonomy, I think, will take place at the second advent of Jesus Christ. So Jesus fulfills the ceremonial sacrificial laws and he also fulfills the civil and judicial laws. Jesus also fulfills the moral law, which is I might, I'm guessing most people are curious about, right? He fulfills the moral law, but the application is different from the ceremonial and civil laws. Jesus fulfills the moral law by his righteous obedience right? Jesus is the sinless Savior. He is the sinless Savior, and it took the sinless Savior to die to to save a bunch of people breaking the law who are sinners. But what is the call of Christ to all Christians, right? right? We're supposed to go and do likewise, so how does this map on? Think about it for a moment. How does the remainder of the Sermon on the Mount make sense unless it is Jesus teaching about the law? Jesus isn't going to teach something contradictory to what God has already spoken. Go ahead and look real quick. What is Jesus going to teach on after we get over the bridge? Anger, lust, divorce, oaths, reconciliation, loving your enemy. In chapter 6 of Matthew, Jesus is going to address giving to the needy. Like, that's all over the pages of the Old Testament, right? We care for those who are being oppressed. Jesus is going to pick that up out of what he knows from the Old Testament. And then in chapter 7, Jesus talks about judging others. So what is Jesus doing throughout the Sermon on the Mount? He's rightly interpreting the Old Testament law, the moral law, Not by first critiquing your actions, but by shepherding your heart. Here's an essential passage from the prophet Jeremiah. Key text to help us understand what is going on under the new covenant. It's a longer passage, but it's worth it. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenants that I made with her father's, On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the... So something something happened. You know what? Israel kept messing it up over and over again. But the prophet Jeremiah continues, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put the law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. The prophet Jeremiah does not say the law is going to be abolished, but he's, he's saying it's going to be applied in a new way. It will be applied right here in your heart. And that's really important to grasp, right? You really see what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount before he gets to the do's and don'ts he's like man heart check he's picking up on what Jeremiah said here's one more observation from Matthew 5:17 the law was given for several reasons but in particular here to show that men could never justify themselves before god the law was and is continue is designed to show a person's need for christ here's galatians 3:24 therefore the law has become a tutor Why? Why do you need a tutor in particular? To lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. This is another crucial distinction. The law has never been able to redeem a person. The Old Testament people of God could not save themselves through obedience to the law. And the same is with the people of God under the new covenant. The law pointed people to God in the Old Testament, and they pointed them to Christ, the Messiah, because only Christ saves. The people of God under the new covenant are equally pointed to Christ by the law because only Christ saves. I mean, parenthetical story, not in my notes, but I think it fits real real well right here. I grew up a Catholic, a faithful Catholic went to Mass every Sunday. There's some midweek stuff. I do that altar boy in the high school, wear the silly thing and the cords and ring the bells and do the incense, right? Been there, done that. But I will say this. I learned a lot about ethics and morality from the Catholic Church. Now, their process of salvation is completely unbiblical. But I did learn a lot. I did learn a lot. And in a way, God used the Catholic Church To show me I could not save myself, that I needed Christ. And there was a point, like I said, 20 years ago, where I was on my knees, in tears, holding some navy blue Bible that someone had given to me, crying out to God, because I realized I couldn't save myself. No matter how hard I tried, I couldn't do it. But the law did point me to Christ. And for that, I actually can be grateful. So Jesus did not abolish the law, but the law persists by God's grace to this day. The next verse expresses the, what I'm calling the durability of the law. Here's verse 18. For Jesus says, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So when I say durability, I mean that the law transcends time and covenants. The Bible is full of covenants. In a sense, the moral law has staying power. I think Jesus is making quite a statement in verse 18. An iota and a dot are the smallest markings in the Greek language, which is what the New Testament is written in. There's not one aspect of the law to be swept aside. The ceremonial and sacrificial aspects of the law are significant because they find their fulfillment at the cross of Jesus Christ and the moral law, moral part of the law, cannot be disregarded, hence the remainder of the Sermon on the Mount. The debatable question from verse 18 is the statement, until all is accomplished, right? Like, what, what does that mean? What when, What's this future date you talk about, Jesus? The moral law is not going in a well, anywhere until this thing or this event is accomplished. Now, I need to admit that various people... Uh, have opinions on what is all of of accomplished mean. Three basic categories, and I'll give you my opinion. Some people believe that all is accomplished means 70 AD at the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. If you don't know that, that's okay. That's definitely one category of people who believe all is accomplished is 70 AD. Number two, some people all is accomplished is, and I think it's a good option, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the third option is the second advent of Jesus Christ. Now, I'll give my opinion, but I deserve the right to change my mind. So I'm like 80% certain. So I got about 20% wiggle room, you know, something like that. But I do believe all is accomplished means when Jesus comes back. Here's my rationale. Option two, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus is compelling. But we know that God still needs to restore and redeem this broken world. He's not done. He is not done. That does not diminish what Christ has done at the cross, but we know there's more. We know there's more. Through Christ, spiritual redemption is taking place right now, but there will be a day when Jesus redeems all things, spiritual and physical. So my conclusion from verse 18 is not an iota or dot will pass away until Jesus comes back. I've got good friends who disagree with me on that. That's cool. So that's why i got 20% to you know, mess with. All right, compounding my conclusion is actually the next verse, I think. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So here's the question I would have. Why would Jesus put a high emphasis on his disciples to teach his commandments, the law, for such a short amount of time? Jesus knew that his death was necessary for the salvation of his elect people. So why bother teaching something that will soon become become moot? Now, I want to acknowledge that I'm making an argument from silence. Um, So if you like philosophy and argumentation, you know what I'm talking about. But in my mind, it makes no sense. When you couple this passage with Matthew 28... We see the exact opposite. Again, we see the staying power of the moral law. Let's go to Matthew 28. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations. That's good. So you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. Go make more disciples. Go make more disciples. But how do we do that? How do we make more disciples? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Jesus fulfilled the entire law, but the various aspects of the law, the moral aspects, are applied differently. And the commandments of Christ are to be taught to future disciples. Ryan pointed out in his meditations during worship. Right. A second supporting point from verse 19 is that Jesus makes a distinction between those who teach and uphold the commandments and those who relax the commandments, right? So there's a contrast here. Do this, don't do that. I will occasionally make statements um, that the evangelical church has become squishy. Uh, More broadly speaking, Protestant Christianity is beyond squishy, in my opinion. Uh, I know I stole this phrase from someone, but I think the American Evangelical Church is Jelly. <laughs> it's not a political statement. It really isn't. Uh, it's not about who you voted for in the last or upcoming election. It's not about what kind of music you like to listen to on Sunday morning, slow, fast, or somewhere in between. A reason why the American church has become squishy is that we have relaxed from teaching and doing the commandments of Christ. say it again, a reason why the American church has become squishy, and somebody got a better word than squishy, I'm all ears, is that we've relaxed from teaching and doing the commandments of Christ. Shallow, we'll go with shallow. Hollow, we'll like it. If you think I am preaching legalism, I will refer you to last week's sermon. If you're wondering where's the grace, hold tight, I'm getting there. The point I'm trying to make is that the church, generally speaking, can be tempted to two extremes when it comes to understanding the law. The first extreme, legalism. The second one, another theological term that I mentioned, antinomianism, which when you take that word and you break it down, uh, namas means law and anti means no law. Antinomianism is not adding to the law, but absolutely just rejecting the law antinomians reject the objective moral standards of God. And you'll, you might hear things like, give me Jesus, right? But you will not hear the standards of Christ taught. Whether admitted or not, those who hold to an antinomian view of the law will reject the Ten Commandments and they will reject the teachings of Christ throughout the Gospels and the Sermon on the Mount. Here's the deal with holding to an antinomian view of the law. Sin is not taken seriously because the objective standard of ethics and morality is removed. Therefore, a church can like just make it up as you go along, right? You can acquiesce to whatever the culture is telling you because the law has been removed. In my opinion, the preponderance of biblical evidence leads us to a place where the moral law is not only binding but it is the path that leads us to understand what it means to love God and love others. Now, you might say, how could I possibly uphold God's commandments, right? You might wonder that question after reading verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never, like, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that seems jarring. Like, I was with you, Jesus, up until verse 20. The scribes and the Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. And dare I say, there are pastors and ministers. They're the pastors and ministers of our day. Like a pointing the finger at me. And Jesus says, Your good works, your righteousness needs to outpace their good works, their righteousness. So I need to hit the pause button for a moment and say that Jesus is saying that you need to achieve the impossible. If you were flying the wall when Jesus initially said these words, I mean, I, I would imagine seeing so many distraught faces. Like, you've got to be kidding me. Man, the Beatitudes were fantastic. You were preaching to my heart. Yes, we got to deal with the law because that's a big deal. But now you're telling me I need to be more righteous than all the holy guys walking around in Jerusalem? How could I even possibly do that? The scribes knew the law better than anyone. They were the college professors reading Hebrew and Greek, ensuring that the Bible was translated correctly and your righteousness needs to exceed theirs. The Pharisees were the pastors. They were the holy ones who followed every point of the law. And now Jesus says that your righteousness needs to exceed theirs. Jesus is asking the impossible, which is the point. Remember when I said that the law is supposed to lead you to Jesus? Well, here we go. Because of sin, everyone who has ever existed, excluding the Son of God, Our sinless Savior has committed cosmic treason against God. You are incapable of fulfilling the law. The Apostle Paul quotes Psalm 14 and says this in Romans None is righteous, no, not one. So Jesus has said, You need to be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees. And Jesus is actually getting at a point, and Paul is picking it up on it. No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. The problem with the scribes and Pharisees is that they tried to live for God in their strength, and then they expected others to do the same. The Pharisees demanded that you obey the law, and then this is what they would do. The Pharisees would say, Okay, we need you to obey the law, so we're going to create a bunch of other laws to ensure you don't break that law. I mean, what a burden that is. So the question I have for Jesus is this, how on earth can you or I possibly be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees? The answer, grace. In the gospel of Luke, we see a picture of grace versus self-righteousness. Throughout my life, this is one of the most impactful parables um, in this parable, Jesus contrasts a Pharisee and a tax collector. I, I, wanna, I want us to read it. Jesus says, or this is recorded, he also told the parable to some who trusted in themselves, right? There's the self-righteousness. He knows his audience. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So Jesus is about to tell this parable knowing who he was talking to. <laughs> He's making a point. Two men went into a temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Pause. I hope you see yourself as the tax collector here. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Yeah, tax collectors weren't viewed on very favorably in the first century. I fast twice a week, the Pharisee says, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, will not even lift up his eyes to heaven. So, pause. We got this Pharisee who is doing all the righteous things, right? He's, he's checking all of the boxes, And then we have this tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who is humble, who humbles himself, will be exalted. Amen, indeed. At the end of the day, what is the difference between the Pharisee and the tax collector? The motives between the two are radically different. The tax collector knew that he was not perfect, which, like I said last week, knowing that you're not perfect is a distinguishing mark of the Christian faith. The tax collector knew that he needed heart change and required help. The Pharisee thought he had it all figured out. And in thinking that he got it all figured out, hardened his heart toward God. Martin Lloyd-Jones nails the difference between the Pharisee and what Jesus actually wants from his disciples. Here's what he says. The trouble with the Pharisees was that they were interested in details rather than Principles. That they were interested in actions rather than motives. That they were interested in doing rather than being. The remainder of the Sermon on the Mount is just an exposition of that. Our Lord said to them, in effect, you are pleased with yourselves because you do not commit adultery. Right? You're pleased. You got that one down. But Jesus says, no. Even look at someone with lust in your eyes. That is adultery. What's Jesus' point? They're not righteous. They may do the horse and pony show, but at the end of the day, they're not even righteous. Apart from the grace of the gospel, the impulse is legalism or antinomianism. However, if you rest in the grace of the gospel, following Christ and his commandments is not a duty, but it is a delight when you rest in the grace of the gospel, you realize the commandments nudge you toward Christ. And you realize you can't rightly follow one of the commandments apart from the grace of Christ. I said this last week, but it's worth repeating. The ethics of the Sermon on the Mount put you into a place of sweet dependence upon God. The righteousness that you seek is not from duty but faith in Christ. The 16th century reformer Martin Luther was utterly undone from this passage, which I'm about to read. It was from this passage that he began to understand the relationship between his faith and the law of God. We read in Romans 1, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. Verse 17 really struck his heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. For... In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by what? Faith. Verse 17 does not say, excuse me, of of Romans 1, does not say that the righteous shall live by the law. It does not say that the righteous shall live by your good works. No, your righteousness rests upon faith in Christ And then from faith, your good good deeds will be seen by others so that they may glorify God. I want to land the plane by pointing out that what we are about to endeavor upon is a sampling of the ethics of God, how we are to live as his sons and daughters. But the purpose of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is spiritual development, right? It's a call to grow in holiness in the grace of Christ. It's an opportunity for you not to feel the crushing weight of legalism, but to walk with Christ so that you may know more of Christ. The Sermon on the Mount steers you away from uh, legalism. It steers you away from antinomianism. Instead, it is, a, it is a call. This this sermon is, is a call for you to surrender to Christ. Why? Because it is for your good and it is for God's glory. Let's pray.